Please take your Bibles, and I'll encourage you to open your scripture today to the book of Matthew. My name is Pastor Eric, and uh, the pastor of student ministries here at Faith. Um, pastor Steve is gone this week, so we've been going through a series with him on Second Peter. Um, he will be back next week, and we'll jump back in on that. But today, what I wanted to do is take a look in the book of Matthew at a very common passage of scripture. Uh, Many of us are familiar with it, and maybe, honestly, we're a little too familiar with it. Um, And that's the Lord's Prayer, and we find in Matthew chapter 6. You know, many times I think we sometimes approach prayer out of a sense of duty, or perhaps obligation. Maybe we feel guilty if we don't pray enough, or we know we're supposed to and, and we don't. My hope in prayer today is as we kind of walk through this passage that we'll walk away with a a renewed, fresh perspective on the role of prayer in our lives. And that we would maybe also walk away with a specific plan and an approach of how we can strengthen that part of our relationship with the Lord. I think it would only be appropriate if we start by praying and asking God to guide our time. So would you join me as I pray? Father, I thank you for the time that we've been able to be here already this morning uh, in worship as we've celebrated around the table your death and resurrection and as we have cried out to you through Pastor Brian and the worship team our need for you as we celebrate you. Father, I want to ask now that your spirit would open our hearts, open our minds to what you want to teach us through your word and may we receive it and be transformed from it. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Matthew 6 sits in the middle of a larger section of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. Many of us are familiar with that. Uh, It's found in Matthew. It's where Jesus pulls many of his disciples aside and they go up on the side of a mountain and he teaches them a variety of lessons and truths related to the spiritual Christian life. It covers actually three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I think it's easy for us to see these chapters as having a variety of short but yet powerful lessons about truth and ways that Christ calls us as believers to live. And while this is true, I want to encourage us to step back and take a look at a bigger picture of what Jesus might be trying to say here. I really think he's, he's trying to paint a bigger picture of two different realities that are happening here. And the first reality is that there's an earthly kingdom. There's an earthly kingdom that we live in, that we're a part of. We've, we're born into it. We have been taught in it. We live in it, certain guidelines and principles and um, customs. But there's also this heavenly kingdom going on. It's a kingdom that we can't see, but it's a kingdom that Jesus himself is from. It's where he lives. It's where his priorities and his values are upheld. And if you were to take a step back and summarize chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Matthew, it would probably perhaps be something like this, as if Jesus was saying, you know, there's this whole other kingdom at work right now. You can't see it, but that's where I live. It's a kingdom that is centered around my values, my principles. And it's a kingdom that I really want you to start thinking about and being a part of. I want to invite you into that kingdom into those priorities and that mindset. And so what I want to do is to teach you what it is and how it is to live with that style. 
He's like, I know you're familiar with this kingdom here on earth. You live in it. You swim in it every day. You know those principles. You know the guidelines and the truths. But I want to invite you to look heavenward. To look up and to set your gaze on my kingdom. And begin to see the kind of kingdom that I'm calling you to. Well, I think what Jesus is inviting us to consider is to shift our focus. To shift our focus from this broken, beaten down, temporal kingdom that we're a part of now. And to think about the eternal kingdom. A heavenly kingdom that's centered around God himself. Around his priorities. His values. It's a kingdom that will never end. It's a kingdom that will never be defeated. Christ invites us to think and to shift ourselves into that focus. And so as you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's interesting to see how everything that Jesus talks about really shifts us and points in that direction. For example, he talks about the kingdom of heaven two different times in the Beatitudes, right off the bat in Matthew chapter 5. He highlights these two different kingdoms and other passages around there. You've heard it was say, said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There's the shift. You've heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And on and on, Jesus goes. It's this framework that Jesus is creating and communicating. And he challenges them to shift their thinking. And so the passage we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 6 really centers around shifting our thinking about prayer. So Matthew 6, verse 5, if you want to read it with me, it starts off by saying, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. That's that earthly kingdom perspective, right? That's what's going on down here. Jesus, the next words, but when you pray, and Jesus begins to set up the framework for prayer that's going to lift us up out of this earthly kingdom mindset and help us set our minds and our prayers on a heavenly kingdom. And we don't have time today to go through the entire Lord's Prayer, um, but I want to highlight just a couple things from the first half of this prayer that I think are significant to help us make that shift from an earthly kingdom mindset to a heavenly kingdom mindset. And the first one is this, is that Jesus challenges us to shift our focus and pause at the holiness and the awe of God. In verse 9, Jesus begins this prayer, and when he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, hallowed isn't one of those words that we use a lot in our vocabulary nowadays. Uh, this past week I did a Google search, and if you do that, you can see the trend and the uh, amount of usage of any word in English literature. And I will tell you that hallowed is one of those words from the 1850s that has slowly decreased in usage to today. But it describes something, or in this case it describes someone, someone who is to be greatly revered or respected. It's where we get the word holy from, to be set apart, to be sanctified, or to be other, to be pure. And we know as we read this verse, the someone who is being referenced here as holy is God himself. 
You know, how many times do we approach God in our prayers as if He's just a good buddy? He's a, he's a close friend, He's a pal, He's someone we just need to do our business with really quickly and then we get on our way. You know, hey God, you know, man, I, I got a list of things right here. If you could just help me with this, you know, I'm going through this struggle right now and, and if you could help me with that and if you could bless that. Oh, by the way, I'd really love to get that raise at work right now because I really want to take this vacation to Bermuda and man, if it would be perfect, you just help, great. Thank you so much, God. Talk to you later. I may not, we may not intentionally pray that way, but we do catch ourselves sometimes, right? With that mindset. It's that earthly mindset. It's an earthly kingdom focus where our prayers are all about us and our list. But by unpacking this description of God, our Father, Jesus is challenging us to see God Himself as hallowed and holy. He's asking us to make that conscious decision to shift our mindset from the idea that, hey, I'm just going to go and hang out and talk with God right now, as if it, you know, we would talk to Him in the same way that we would talk to our next-door neighbor or, or our best friend or, or our co-worker in the cubicle next to us. Right? It's, it's taking that shift and, and reminding us, Jesus reminding us that as we begin prayer addressing God our Father, we need to pause and realize that He is holy. Instead of just quickly passing by the salutation to get to the supplication and what we think is the good stuff, right? Jesus is saying, no, guys, acknowledging God and who He is is the good stuff. God is holy. He is majestic. He is transcendent. He is above anything that you and I can comprehend. He's the creator of the stars and the entire universe. This is the God that you and I have the privilege to approach. And when we shift into that kind of thinking, into that kind of a prayer style, it makes us stop and say, whoa. We don't know what to say. We're we're speechless, right? We come to realize we're not just talking to our buddy next door. We're not just talking to our coworker in the next cubicle over. We're talking to the one himself who is set apart who is holy, who is sanctified, God himself. So when we pray, do we approach the Lord in a manner that recognizes his holiness and his majesty? Do we we respond in a way like Isaiah did when he was confronted with the Lord in Isaiah 6, with the seraphim flying all around, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Or like the psalmist when he describes the majesty and the glory of God in Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm, and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house. For endless days. Imagine that instead of a quick, hey God, here's what I need from you today, we end up praying, hey God, whoa, you're holy, you're magnificent. There are no words that can describe your greatness. And all I can do is to bow down and worship you. Is it a surprise what God says in Psalm 46.10 to be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You think God knew that we would have trouble being still before the Lord and meditating on His holiness? There's a shifting that we need to recognize and we need to embrace in order for us to have a heavenly kingdom-focused life. Louis Giglio once said, When there is no hallowed, our prayers are hallowed. Where there is no hallowed, our prayers are hollow. We need to shift our focus and pause the holiness and the awe of God. I'm curious, how many of you know how to drive a manual stick car? Just show of hands. Wow, this is fantastic. Um, you know, for the city boy like myself, manual sticks are pretty complicated. Um, they're difficult. You laugh at me. Let me explain. I have a hard time figuring out. I mean, your feet always have to be doing something, right? And your hands always have to be doing something. You've got one foot on the clutch. You've got a foot on the gas. And doggone it, why didn't we have a third foot to be able to put it on the brake, right? I mean, you've got to figure all this out in just the right order and the right approach and the right method. And then you've got your hand over here to kind of use on that gear shift thing. It doesn't leave a lot of room to hold on to your macchiato or your frappuccino. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm in a world of, of crisis right now, right? Well, my high school, when I learned how to drive, did not offer driver's ed with a stick shift. And I never had the opportunity to learn that from my family. So I wasn't able to experience the joys that all of you obviously have in knowing how to drive a stick. But I remember once when I was a senior in high school, uh, a friend of mine won a local um, pageant contest. And she was named the pageant queen. And one of her responsibilities as a pageant queen was to go around in all the nearby towns in the, in the area and in the county or a couple counties away. And um, she would be in the parades as a way to promote and, and bring awareness to her organization and the, the pageant that she represented. And so um, she had approached me one day and uh, she was in need of a chauffeur to drive her around to all these parades on Saturday mornings um, and asked if I would be willing to do that. I was like, okay, sure, you know, and, and she's like, well, I'll, I'll work on trying to get either brand new or almost new convertibles for you to drive. And I'll talk to the car dealers and, you know, see if I can loan them or, or uh, from some close friends of ours. Well, for me, growing up in a small town, you know, I'd never driven a convertible before. Um, those cars were a little out of our league. Our league really revolved around these old, beat-up, sky-blue Chevy station wagons. Anybody with me on this? Anybody have one of these? I see a couple heads nodding out there, right? I mean, this is the kind of car where if you're inside of it, particularly as a kid, but I'm sure mom and dad had the same thing, you know, hot summer day, you're, you're peeling your arm right off of those vinyl seats, and your legs are sticking on there, right? And you got those hand-cranked windows, which... Interesting, they were always backwards to crank them as opposed to forwards, and they would only go down two-thirds of the way, right? Um, and then you got that tailgate, which is like wider than a barn door, you know, and it swings out like that, and you gotta, gotta swing that back, you know, and unlike this car here that you see, mine um, had an ever-expanding assortment of rust holes going down either side of the doors. This was the league that my family swam in. Convertibles were not part of that. But 
Miss Pageant Queen says, Eric, would you be willing to drive me in these parades? And oh, by the way, I'm going to do my best to do an automatic transmission on these cars, but are you okay with driving a stick? And put yourself in my shoes for a moment as a high school senior guy, all right? Now, you just had the pageant queen approach you about offering to drive her as a chauffeur in numerous parades around town and in the area over numerous Saturday mornings. You get the opportunity to drive brand new convertibles and you get to be seen by all these people around you. Your answer to that question is going to be, Yes, of course it is. We'll figure out all the stick chip stuff later, right? And so that's what I did. And man, it was a great experience. Let me just tell you, we had some pretty cool convertibles. I don't remember exactly what they were, um, but uh, many of them, if not all of them, came with under 100 miles on them. So they still had that new car smell. Um, you know, some of them still had the plastic on the seats in the back, and it was incredible. You know, we're we're meeting up on a Saturday morning, and and she's sitting in the back on that little you know seated area there, and she's kind of doing the princess wave thing, and we're cruising through the the route, and I got the arm on the on the on the window, and I got the the turned on the radio, and we are just having a ball, right? So the one morning when she got a vehicle, and I noticed as I approached the car that there is this little gear shift down on the bottom right side. And it was a stick. I was like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. I can do this. I can do this. I kept telling myself, it's, it's not going to be that bad. Right? I don't know if you've ever tried to teach someone how to drive a stick shift, but there comes a certain point when you can only take them so far as a teacher. And then you need to just let them experience what it's like to actually drive a stick car. Am I right on that? I mean, usually when you do that, you're, you're, you're in a parking lot, um, you know, maybe a, a school parking lot or a church parking lot, and, and you do that when there's not a lot of obstacles around. You do that when there's not a lot of people around, and you do that when you just have a lot of space to try. Well, I didn't have any of that. I had about 20 minutes to figure out how to drive a stick shift car before I had to take Miss Pageant Queen through her parade route that morning. So she gave me some great instructions, some direction, how to, you know, shift the gears and change stuff, put the foot on the gas and the clutch, all that other good stuff. I'm like, man, we're good. <laughs> we are so good. I mean, after all, it's just a parade, you know? I mean, you don't go over, like, two miles an hour in the parade, right? I mean, you can just kind of creep along, and every now and then just put your foot on the brake so you don't hit the car in front of you, you know? But then the moment of truth came. We lined up into our spot in the parade, into the parade route, and... You know, she hopped in. She got it going first for me. I still not feeling completely confident. But uh, she got the car going for me, got it in, in first gear, and she reminded me again how to use the pedals. And, and then she got out, and I jumped in, and she got herself situated on the back, and, you know, all her parade, you know, princess pose and all that bit. I don't think we made it more than 100 feet. Car's dead right there. Oh, man. All right. So, you know, she's like, hey, Eric, you know, here's what you got to do. She just tried to coach me on how to start the engine again, how to get all the gears in place and where to put my feet and all this stuff. And it didn't work. So she had to get herself down and I got out and she sat in the seat again and got the car going. And all right, we're going again. So all right, round two. Here we go. One more block down the road. 
stalled again. Great. And again, she's got to come down from her spot, you know, and get everything going again. Let me just say, there is probably nothing more embarrassing than to have a pageant queen who is perfectly dressed, has her makeup done just perfectly, has her hair done just perfectly, in her heels, in with her sash, coming down off of the back of the car and trying to restart a car and have a bozo chauffeur driver who doesn't know how to drive a stick convertible in a parade that's going only two miles an hour. Hey, it's all right. Hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, we're good. Oh, really? We're fine. You know, clutch, yeah, you know, we just had it fixed yesterday on the car. It's still a little sticky. Yeah, you know, sorry about that. We'll, we'll get going here soon, you know? Oh, yeah, sorry. Hey, how's it going? No, we're all good. We're good. We're good. You know, I think the guy who had this car last night just kind of rode it a little hard, you know, so we got a little problem here, but we're good, you know? Man, talk about a tough experience. And, and that was only at the beginning, the first two blocks of the parade. You know, I don't have time to tell you about what happened when we encountered the hills. Or when, uh, <laughs> true story, the, uh, the parade organizers came up beside my car as we were coming to the end of the route and started asking me questions about the smells that they seemed to be getting reports on from our vehicle. But, uh, but thank the Lord we made it through that parade and uh, without any damage um, besides my macho image and my ego. Uh, but I tell you that because as believers, I believe that sometimes we view our life with Christ and our prayer life in a very similar way. You know, we sometimes fall into the trap and we think that our walk with Christ is like an automatic transmission in a car. You stick the key in there, you hop in the driver's seat, you turn the button, boom, you're good. You're golden. All you got to do is sit back, relax, take it easy, and enjoy the ride. It'll take you where you need to go. It's going to shift for you. You are set. Very little effort, right? But the reality is our relationship, our walk with Christ, it's more like a manual shift where we have to put our hand on the gear shift and we have to move it into high gear. It's not going to go there on its own. You know, I loved last week as Pastor Steve was talking about his series in Second Peter and pursuing spiritual growth. And he emphasized so clearly in First or Second Peter chapter one how it challenges us to make every effort. Spiritual growth does not come by default. We need to be intentional and purposeful and shift into that higher gear. I mean, believe it or not, you can actually drive in a stick shift from here all the way to Los Angeles in first gear. Right? I mean. It may take a little bit of time to get there, but it'd be kind of cool, right? I mean, you'd probably be feeling pretty good because, hey, you don't have to do anything. You just kind of kick back, turn the radio on. Our God is for us. Who can be it? Right? I mean, you're just letting the wind blow through the hair and, and all the way to L.A. But I'll bet you, if you have a buddy in the seat right next to you, he's going to be likely asking you, why are you not shifting gears? Let's take it up a notch. Let's get ourselves to L.A. Because as soon as you do that, you're going to discover that you're now traveling and cruising at a whole different level than what you were before. And the same thing is true in our prayer lives. You know, we can continue praying in first gear. Right? Doing our little earthly kingdom prayers. Hey, God, you know, can you just take care of this for me? Um, I love this, but, man, I really need your help with this. All right? Thanks, God. Talk to you later. 
little effort, just cruising right along, going through life, doing your thing. But God is inviting us to shift into a higher gear. And when we do that, we're saying, God, we know that there's this earthly kingdom going on over here. We know what's going on, but man, we have been dwelling in our prayer life there too much, too long. Man, I need your help, God. I I need you to enable me to shift and to begin thinking heavenly kingdom-focused prayers. To shift my thinking, to shift my attitude, to shift our prayers to this new high level. Why do we do that? Because when we shift and we move our focus into that heavenly kingdom, that's where we begin to tap into the heavenly resources that are available to us. We tap into those heavenly values. We begin to see the heart of God and to pray the prayers that He desires for us to have. And that we have that kingdom benefit and the growth that God desires for us to experience in our lives here on earth. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. It's shifting our hearts and our minds into a heavenly kingdom focus and away from the earthly kingdom focus. And as we stay with that, as we continue with that, our prayers become more emboldened and passionate around the kingdom and the values and priorities that God has for us. Prayers that find His favor. Why is that? Because we have come to the point where we recognize who it is that we're talking to. God Himself. He is holy. And He is worthy of our worship. The second result of shifting our focus is that we will shift our dependence on our reliance onto Him. Matthew 6, verse 10. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can Jesus be any more clear about this kingdom shift? You know, as we shift our hearts and our minds in prayer, we begin to say, God, it's your thoughts over my thoughts. Your heart over my heart. Your desires over my desires. Your will over my will. And when we look back in the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see that prayer wasn't just something that he talked about, but it was actually prayer, that something that he modeled. He demonstrated a deep dependence on the Lord through prayer. It was through those times of prayer that he was able to really fulfill God's will for his life and for his ministry. In fact, Scripture records over 40 times during the life of Jesus when he would go off to pray. You may want to write some of these verses down and do some uh, reading later on. But I'll share a few situations and instances where he did that. Interesting to note that Jesus' public ministry began with prayer when he was being baptized. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And interesting to note, if you were to go at the very end of his life, his public ministry ended with prayer on the cross in Luke chapter 23, 46 and 47. Jesus spent considerable amount of time in prayer before making any significant decisions, such as choosing the twelve disciples, Luke 6, verse 12. And he continued to make prayer a priority in the midst of a very busy, hectic, unexpected, overwhelming day of ministry. Teaching, healing people, casting out demons, having meals with one another. One situation is in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, where he says, Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went off 
to pray. If you look at what happened right before that, you'll see that he had a very stressful, challenging, interruptive day of ministry. If that was me, I'd be rewriting that verse. After I slept in and hit the snooze button five times and had four coffees, I would go off to pray. Jesus, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, the priority that Jesus had on prayer fueled him for the ministry that God had called him to do. You see that in other places too. Mark 6, 46, Luke 5. Uh, very long, busy days performing miracles. Jesus continued the priority of prayer. And let's not forget about the time that he spent in prayer for his disciples and for the believers in John 17 or in the garden, asking the Lord if it was possible that this cup be taken from him. What was his words? Not my will, but your will be done. His life was saturated in prayer. Billy Graham said, One of the most amazing things in the Gospels is how much time Jesus spent in prayer. He had only three years of public ministry, but he was never too hurried to spend hours in prayer. He prayed before every difficult task and of every crisis in his ministry. No day began or closed in which he was not communion with his Father. Wow. Is that not convicting? What an example and a model for us to follow. He knew that he needed that time with the Lord, and he made it a priority. It renewed him, it restored him, and it gave him a clear understanding of the vision and the mission that God had for his life. And if Jesus needed to spend time with his Father in complete, utter dependence, how much more do we need to spend time with our Heavenly Father in prayer? Doing the exact same thing, declaring our dependence and our reliance on him and him alone for wisdom, for discernment, for insight, for our proper hearts. His thoughts over our thoughts. His desires over ours. Your will over ours. We need to shift our prayer life from first gear, praying earthly kingdom prayers on an occasional basis or whenever we feel like it or only around the dinner table. We need to shift that into a high gear and begin to pray kingdom-minded prayers. In short, our prayer life needs to imitate his prayer life. He modeled the dependency and reliance on God. How can you and I specifically begin to model a dependency on prayer to fuel our mission? Well, a shift in prayer also challenges us to shift where we place our confidence. This third thing. Not in ourselves, but in the God that we're praying to. Verse 11 in Matthew chapter 6 says, Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the statement reflects that we're to ask God to provide for our daily needs. That's true. But as we say that, it's also an admittance and a confidence that he can and does provide for our daily needs. You know, and isn't that the role of what a parent does? Is provide for the daily needs of their children? You know, I recognize we all have different experiences. We all come from different backgrounds when it comes to our families and to our parents. But can I just remind us that we're not referring and talking about our earthly fathers here. We're talking about our heavenly father. The one who is holy, who is perfect. If you've ever been a parent, you, uh, you begin to take on that role of knowing what your kids need before they even ask. 
You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, imagine with me, if you will, wintertime, your, your kids decide they're going to go out in the backyard and they're going to play in the snow, right? They're out there in the back and they're maybe building a snow fort or a snowman or they're going down the hill on a sled and, and they're having a ball and you're watching from the inside in the kitchen with your little you know, hot chocolate and with a big smile on your face, but you realize, oh, they're going to need their clubs, so you go over to the closet and you, you grab the gloves out of the, out of the box and it doesn't take more than 30 seconds later, little Johnny comes in and says, Mom, it's cold outside, I need my gloves. And you give him the gloves. Wow. How did you know that? Do you have like magical powers or something, Mom? And what do you as a parent say? I'm your parent. I know these things. I know what you need before you even ask. Little Johnny runs off back outside. He's got a smile on his face, feeling safe and secure and confident, knowing that his mom and dad are going to meet his basic everyday needs. Isn't Jesus saying the same thing about his father in this passage? Our father, our heavenly father. If you look back at verse 8, you'll see, Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Can we consider this for a moment? God the Father sent Jesus His Son down from His heavenly kingdom to this broken earthly kingdom that we live in. He came down as a perfect man, without sin. And while He was here, He kept His eyes completely fixed on the mission that God had for Him the purpose of why he was here. And that mission ultimately took him to the cross where Jesus took on all the shame and all the sin and the punishment that we deserved. And he ultimately died and rose again on the third day. We celebrated that down here this morning. How much more proof do we need to realize that God our Father did exactly what a father should do? And that's to meet our greatest need in a time when we didn't even know we needed it. What's our greatest need? It's to be forgiven. We need to be in a restored relationship with our Creator God who made us. And here's God, on His own initiative, on His own thought, just chose to surrender, to give up His very own Son to come onto this earth to meet our needs at a time when we didn't even know we needed it. We've got to shift the focus of our thinking so we can have away from the confidence that we have in ourselves, thinking that we can do it all ourselves. Hey, I can do it. Pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can please God. I can do whatever's going to make Him right. I'm going to earn my way into heaven. I'm going to do this because it's all gone and I am good. Give us this day our daily bread. We need to shift our focus to a heavenly kingdom. And recognize and come to rely on the fact that God himself, because of what Christ did on the cross, his death and resurrection, has already met our deepest, biggest need. We can have confidence that when we approach God in prayer because of that, he hears us. He listens to us. He cares for us. And he's going to give us exactly what we need. It may not always be what we want. And we may not always like it. But it will always be what we need. His plan is perfect because God is good. We may not be able to see it fully, but we can have confidence and trust that God has our best interest in mind. Do you and I have that confidence when we pray? 
So as we think about this role and the place of prayer in our lives, I want to encourage us, first of all, to choose to shift our focus onto God's holiness and His awe. I want to challenge us to shift our dependence onto Him, away from ourselves and onto Him. And lastly, express our confidence in Him because of Him helping us meet, Him meeting our deepest need, that He hears us. He's going to help us with that. Man, maybe you need a shift in incorporating prayer more into your regular routine of your life. I'll tell you, in the last few months, this has been a time where the Lord has really been pressing upon me the importance of prayer, both in my own life, but also in our ministry, working with our students. And seeing how the Lord has really been impressing the same burden in other ways here at our church. Uh, Pastor Steve, um, in, in the conversations we've been having, and our elders, and all surrounding ourselves with this importance of prayer. And many of you that I've been speaking with, I believe God is up to something. And He wants to do something in us and through us, individually, but also as a church. And as I'm working to strengthen this time in my own life and and in our ministry, I want to encourage you to consider doing the same. I don't know what that looks like on a personal level. Uh, Maybe as a couple, uh, as a married couple, you want to spend more time together praying for one another, kingdom-minded prayers. Maybe as a family, you want to develop a plan or an approach of how you're going to teach and model kingdom-minded prayers with your kids. Begin to build a healthy rhythm of prayer in your life both individually and as a family, in a way that's kingdom-centered. So it's with that focus and that heart that I want to challenge us as a church body to be a part of a new movement that we're initiating here today at Faith. It's called Pray For Me. And it's focused really on building specific multi-generational prayer mentors for every student in our middle school and high school ministry. The goal of the Pray For Me is to encourage each of us to have an intentional kingdom-minded mindset and a prayer partner focus for each one of our students over the course of a school year and to pray for God's favor and direction in their lives. I want to share a brief video with you that kind of summarizes and highlights and introduces the concept to you, and then I'll share with you a couple thoughts right after we're done. Prayer is real. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until, until I proclaim, I proclaim your, your might to another, another generation. generation. Your power, your power to, to all those to, to come. The Pray For Me campaign is a simple way of connecting the generations. Students invite three adults from three different generations to pray for them. This is a privilege to pray for a middle or high schooler and to commit to that for a year and to be faithful in just lifting them up before the Lord. I want to pray. Someone has asked me to pray for them, but what's the first step? The prayer guide starts out giving you the seven essentials that you're going to be praying for your student. And it gives you something every day to pray that, that has scripture in it and uh, specific things that the students definitely need. Not only will the tool help you to go through a, a guided way of praying, but also to go ahead and go on your own with the help of the Spirit. 
What surprised me about the Pray For Me campaign is just how it impacted me personally. You can grow right along with the students. The day I opened it up and saw praying that they will have wonder at the amazement of the greatness of God, I thought, that is what I want for the student. That's what I want for me. Prayer matters. And I've had people pray for me as a high school kid, and it changed me. I pray that Peter would take hold of your that Jamie would have all a hunger his heart and a thirst and thirst for your wisdom. I pray today that you would bring adult believers into Zachary's life who've compelled to share your greatness with him. I feel more connected to my church. I feel more at peace. I've felt the confidence to take on new challenges, like high school. Will you pray for me is such a simple request, but so often we just don't take it seriously enough. You have been invited. You have been offered an incredible gift. A young person has opened the door to their life by offering you a simple invitation to pray for them. Go to PrayForMeCampaign.com to register. Get the book and start praying. You'll not only change the life of a student, you'll change your life. Be a champion. Pray, 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 for, pray, me. pray for me. hope you can see the power of a movement of prayer and how it can impact the life of a student. <clears throat> you know, while I was in high school, I remember many people who prayed for me, for a missions trip, for a specific situation. Um, but very specifically, I remember two women who took it upon themselves to be my personal prayer partners. I never asked them to do this, but they felt burdened to do that. Betty Fenton and Jeanette Miller. They were two women, sweet, caring souls in their mid-60s. They were widows, and uh, they had the desire within them to pray on a regular, consistent basis for me. I don't think there was a week that went by when I was at church where they didn't come and approach me or one of my parents and, and ask how I was doing or, or to let them know that I was praying for Eric this week or how can I pray for you now. Um, and this continued not only through high school but into college. And... Um, one point in college, I had the opportunity to, to write a paper on prayer and to interview a couple of people that I admired. And Betty and Jeanette were obviously those first two that came to my mind. And to be able to sit and to ask them questions and to kind of go behind the curtain of their prayer life and to understand what really fueled that was an incredible encouragement and an impact to me. In fact, I really believe that the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today in part is because of their consistent regular prayers. So what I want to encourage us as we consider this church-wide movement is um, to, to foster this intentional effort to pair up an adult with a student in our ministry. And those adults we're calling prayer champions. And the role of a champion, of a prayer champion, is to really commit regularly to praying for the student over the course of a school year. As you've heard in this video, um, there is a book that uh, comes along with it. It's a prayer guide. Uh, it's called Pray For Me Prayer Guide. And in there is a daily prayer guide that will help you, based in Scripture, where you have the opportunity to read and to meditate on a passage. And then to use that passage as a springboard for your prayer to pray for your student. It's a powerful way. I can't think of a better kingdom-minded prayer approach than to be praying Scripture on behalf of your student. So these are available. I want to encourage you, if you would like to be a part of this Pray For Me campaign, you have a commitment card in your bulletin. I want to encourage you to pull that out um, and fill that out. 
When you're done, you can drop that off in the table right back by the children's ministry desk. There'll be some people there with some t-shirts on um, that can answer your questions. They can collect those cards from you. Uh, We have copies of this book available as well um, to purchase. Uh, There are some back there. We'll order more if we run out. Um, But we really want to equip you to pray strategically and kingdom-mindedly for a student. And what we will do as you return those cards is we will pair you up with a student and we'll follow up with you with some more information. Um, Our goal is to have every student covered by at least one adult from a generation in our ministry. And we have close to about 100 middle school and high school students. And so, um, ideally, we could have three different generations praying for each student. But we need your help, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. On Wednesday, the first Wednesday of November, November 2nd, we're going to invite all of our prayer champions who are going to be a part of this effort, along with all of our students, to join together for a night of worship, of celebration. We'll get some more information about how we're going to do this, and it'll be our official launch night of our Pray For Me campaign. And so we're going to give you, as the prayer champions, the opportunity to pray for your student right then and there on the spot. Students, you are not exempt from this. There is a prayer guide for the adults, but I will also tell you, I want to challenge you as a middle schooler or as a high schooler to step up to the plate. There's also a student version that you can use to pray for yourself and to pray for your peers. Follows exactly in line with where this is, and I want to challenge us. Again, they're back at the table. We want to encourage you to also be a part of this campaign and to approach of how we're going to do this. Let's begin as a church as a congregation, to shift our focus of our prayer lives from an earthly kingdom to a heavenly kingdom. I really believe God wants to do something in us. And as a pastoral staff and as elders, we are really supportive and behind this effort to make this happen. Because we really believe in the power of kingdom-minded prayers, not just for ourselves, but for our next generation. So we want to encourage you guys to be a part of that. Let me close this in prayer, and Pastor Brian will dismiss us this morning. Father, I thank you for our time. Thank you for this opportunity that we've had to look into your word, to discover the priorities of prayer and how we're challenged to shift our focus in our prayer lives. From ones centered around us to this earthly kingdom to ones that are centered around you and your heavenly kingdom. Father, I pray that you would bless our desires to pray for this next generation of students. Pray that you would rise up adults, prayer champions to help lead the cause and that we would be able to see an impact as a result of that. It's in your name we commit this. Amen.